Hey, good morning, church. Good to see everybody. My name is Scott Franks. I'm the... Yeah, I look forward to doing that. So glad you're here. You found a special place. We love sharing it. And so thank you for being here this morning. If you have not been here for the last few weeks, let me catch up really quickly. We are in a series called A Biblical World. And what we're talking about is a biblical world view. We're talking about how the Bible tells us as God's people to see things, to understand reality. And so what we've been doing is, is, is building with Scripture a biblical world view. And for the rest of our series with this, we're going to camp out on the Ten Commandments because the Ten Commandments are this beautiful, succinct summary of what a world or biblical worldview looks like. And what we've said is it's all about relationships. There are three relationships that Scripture says we have to get right if we're going to enjoy the life that we're supposed to have. And that is being right with God, a relationship with God. And secondly, our relationship with others. And third, our relationship with earth, with creation, with the material world. And the Ten Commandments contains all three of those relationships. And there's a very intentional structure to the Ten Commandments. There's a very intentional purpose to how they are given to us. So as we've talked before, you can, you can pretty much divide the Ten Commandments into two main categories. The first four commandments are about loving God, so our relationship with God. And then the, the last six are about loving others, our relationship with other people. And it's given in that order intentionally because we have to be right with God for any of our other relationships to be right. To love others well, we have to love God first. It starts with him because he is the reason, he is the why we love others. So everything that's, that's right and true and good and pure and lovely is embodied by God. He is all of those things. And all of those things are defined by who he is. So we have to know God. We have to love God. If we're going to love what is right, if we're going to love others well. And so the first four are love God. And then it's love others. And last week, we talked about that fifth commandment where loving God pivots to loving others. And that fifth commandment is honor your father and mother. And we said that was intentionally put there because that is where loving others begins. It starts at home. It starts in the family. And that family structure as intended by God, that's where... It starts in the home. And that's why that command goes right after loving God as we start loving others. So that's the fifth commandment. The next commandment, the sixth commandment, is Exodus 20, 13. You shall not murder. Now, why is that one next? Why, why is that what we need to know before anything else that comes in the commandments? I mean, well, I guess one thing we say is it's certainly the most basic way to love and respect others. If you want to show that you love somebody, don't kill them. <laughs> and in simplest terms, that's, that's a pretty good way to start is let's not kill them. And so that, it's a way to acknowledge that that's the baseline. That's the start to respecting others and this idea that others have inherent 
human rights, that's how we start is by not murdering. And just to be clear, murder is the correct translation in there. This this commandment prohibits murder, not killing. There's two different words in the Hebrew, and I'm going to... This next slide will show you both of those words. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I'm not going to pretend to be. But what I read is there are, there are different words in the, the Hebrew language, which is what the Ten Commandments are given to us in. And there is a word for murder, and there is a word for to kill. And the Sixth Commandment uses the word murder. That's because this commandment is specifically talking about the taking of a human life which is how we term murder. It's, it's not used for all killing. For instance, it, it's, this does not prohibit the, the, the killing and the butchering of animals for meat. And I can, I can say that with certainty because God specifically allows for us to, to kill and eat animals for food. Right after the, the great flood in the story of Noah, as, as life and society is, is restarting on earth, this is what God says to, to him and to us. Genesis 9, starting verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So we're not talking about all killing being prohibited. We're talking about the murder of a fellow human. And that involves some, some, some moral implications. And we'll talk more about that. But it's also acknowledging that sometimes in this sin-broken world, we're faced with terrible situations where killing someone else may be necessary. For, for instance, you know, protecting innocent lives by, by stopping a terrorist who is killing or threatening to kill others is actually respecting life. We're, we're respecting and valuing the lives of those potential victims so much, we're not gonna allow their lives to be taken. So sometimes, because we live in a sin-broken world, to kill in order to prevent even more killing, as terrible as that thought even is, sometimes that is the moral choice. And in the very next chapter, after the Ten Commandments is given in, in Exodus, God starts, God starts fleshing these out. And so for Exodus 21 on, he starts, he starts telling, okay, here's some different scenarios, some real-life situations Well, I'm going to explain to you how to live these commandments out in in practical ways. And that includes what he just told us here about thou shalt not murder. And so he gives us some scenarios. And here's one clarification he gives us about killing, Exodus 21, 14. If anyone schemes and kills someone deliberately, that person is to be taken from my altar and put to death. Or that that could mean even from my altar. If someone comes and grabs the the altar of God to try to protect themselves, he said, no, if if he has intentionally committed homicide, if he has intentionally planned and carried out a murder, he needs to face judgment. He needs to face justice. And so even as the Bible allowed for that reality of, of capital punishment, it places restrictions. 
It places restrictions around how we carry that out. And those restrictions protect life. They sometimes protect even the lives of criminals. Here's an example. This is the next chapter, Exodus 22. If a thief is caught in the act of breaking into a house and is struck and killed in the process, the person who killed the thief is not guilty of murder. But if it happens in the daylight, the one who killed the thief is guilty of murder. Now, what's that talking about? Well, here's, here's what they're describing. If at night a homeowner hears someone breaking in or, or comes upon someone who is breaking into their house or is in their house, at night, in the darkness, in that confusion, he might not be able to tell if that person is there to attack his family or is just there to steal his stuff. And so that command is saying lethal force would be an understandable response. If in that confusion and if in that struggle, a homeowner kills an intruder in that situation, he's not guilty of murder. But if he surprises a thief in the daylight, if this happens in the day where things are clear, and if he can tell that that guy is a thief who's there just to take stuff, he's not there to harm people physically, a homeowner cannot kill him anyway. The Bible does not allow killing over possessions or over simple trespass because, because human life, even the life of a thief, is more valuable than any object he is trying to take. So the scripture is saying, you don't kill somebody over stuff. That's how much I value even the life of that so scripture puts this high fence around human life to protect it and a high penalty when any life is taken unjustly. But here's the, here's the, the bottom line when it comes to the, the general approach to life and the value of life. And again, we go back to Noah. We go back to the flood story. Genesis 9 verse 5. This is God talking to Noah. And I'll require the blood of anyone who takes another person's life. If a wild animal kills a person, it must die. And anyone who murders a fellow human must die. If anyone takes a human life, that person's life will also be taken by human hands. For God made human beings in his own image. So yes, God does endorse capital punishment in some situations. But in just by doing that, he does that because... He is placing immense value on human life. Every life matters. That's what Genesis 9 says. Every life matters to God. So when the Bible endorses capital punishment, it, you're going to read through there. It, it's going to place restrictions on that. It places that responsibility within governing authorities. It does not endorse vigilante revenge. And there's several situations I can talk to you about where, where, where mercy for even the worst of sinners is possible too. But it's not because some lives are worth more than others. If you compare the Israelites' Mosaic law to what we do have in terms of other laws in ancient times from other cultures around them, in those other cultures, you're gonna see situations where if someone was royalty, well, they can get away with more things than if the person was a peasant. You do not find that in God's law. 
In God's law, every life matters. And not a situation where some lives are more valuable than others, not because they belong to a privileged group and they do something to, to those who are considered worth less in their eyes. That is not allowed. The biblical ethic is every life matters. And what's more important is why. It's because God. It's because God intentionally made every human. And every human bears the image of the creator. Every life is given a purpose by God, a place in the story he is writing. We need to make sure we understand that. This is all because God. Every life matters is not, it's not a social construct made up by humans so that we can get along. God did not say, do not murder because you don't want someone else to do that to you. The biblical reasons for being pro-life go much deeper than just getting along with each other. Listen, if, if your ethic on life is based on getting along with others, if you think that you shouldn't kill because that's just, that's what we've decided is the best way for us to get along with each other. If you think the value of human life is a man-made construct, well, the problem there is if man constructed it, then man can also deconstruct it. And they do. We see them do that all the time. We live in a culture that can justify, it can justify why an unborn human baby does not have rights because it's not really a human, at least not human enough, not enough of a human. We see, we see nations where legalized euthanasia is leading to ever higher levels of assisted suicide for an even longer list of reasons. And those reasons are becoming sometimes not just voluntary, but even compelled. And we have many examples in history of one group of humans deciding that eliminating another group of humans because that would be justifiable, because that would be necessary because of whatever, the color of their skin, because of where they live. We've justified this. If, if human life and the value of human life, if you believe that's just something that we constructed to get along, that's not very pro-life. That's not a very strong view of life. In the biblical worldview, however, in the biblical worldview, every life matters. No matter how small, no matter their skin color, because it's because of God. And God is absolutely pro-life. The Bible declares a consistent, exuberant ethic about life, and that is, life is good. I should put that on a t-shirt. You think that would sell? Life is good. You think that thing gets that? But this is a message. This is a message we need to speak out loud often. Life is good because our world is forgetting this truth. Because our world, a lot of them don't really believe it. In a nation already in the midst of a mental health crisis, increased rates of depression and despondency and suicide, despite all that, and there's no denying those stats, despite all that, we see even more state governments legalizing even more recreational drugs so people can escape and numb themselves because to those folks, life is not good. It is so sad to me to see how willing 
So many people are to degrade themselves and debilitate their brains. People have this unbelievably reckless willingness to ingest anything, meth or fentanyl or marijuana or nitrous oxide, because they have decided life is not good. Life is not very good. Life is not enough. And they've decided that they're not all that valuable and things will not get better. And so they're willing to take anything to make them feel something. Listen, church, our world desperately needs to hear the pro-life message in Scripture that life is good. Life is worth living. A biblical worldview is staunchly pro-life in every way. But here's the cool thing, and I've said this before and I'll say it again, I love the honesty of the Bible. The Bible is staunchly pro-life, but it's also honest and realistic about how life can be, about the difficulty of life, about the pain in life. So how can we be both? How can we reconcile these two things? How can we be pro-life and say life is good? And at the same time, say, yeah, but there's this disease. But yeah, there's this cancer. But there's this disability. But there's poverty. But there's this hurt I have. But there's this injustice. How can we reconcile those two things? If we acknowledge how difficult and hard life can be, how can we still say that life is good? Life is always good. How do we live like that? Well, here's how. A biblical worldview is always pro-life. But while we value life highly, we hold it lightly. And it's a unique view. And it's, I'll just be honest with you, it's not gonna make sense to you unless you are a believer, unless you do believe that a loving God created you and he is faithful to his promises to you. If you don't believe that, what I just said to you about, about life, is just, it's not gonna make sense. One, one of the best pithy summaries of how we as Christians approach life is what Paul said here in Philippians 1.21. To live is Christ. To die is gain. To live is good. And when we die, it'll be even better yet. God's people value and enjoy life as this wonderful gift of God, but we hold it lightly because we know we're experiencing a temporary, imperfect version of the life we will one day possess. Our current earthly life in our, in our current earthly body, it's a limited, temporary experience. Our, our current life is precious, but it's just a start. And it's just a start, and it's sometimes difficult and disappointing, but it's unfolding to something that will one day be so much better. So the Apostle Paul, if you go through what he says about life, about how to, how to view your life, how to, how to understand this body that you're experiencing your life in, he uses a bunch of metaphors that try to reinforce the temporary nature of life. So in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, you know, your body, it's like a seed. And then in 2 Corinthians 4, you know, what you, what you are right now, you're like, you're like jars of clay. 
where he talks about what you're seeing right now and how you experience life. It's like you're looking in a dim mirror in 1 Corinthians 13. And then in 2 Corinthians 5, he talks about your body and your life is like a tent. I wish to unpack those real quick. He says, first of all, our bodies are like a seeds. And what we ultimately will become will not be realized until we die, until we are planted, so to speak, in our graves. And when Christ returns, our spirit will be reunited with our body, but in a better resurrection body. The body that comes up out of that grave on that day will be like Christ's resurrection body, so much better than what we have now without all the weaknesses that we have now, without all the disappointments that you have now in your bodies. And then he also compares our bodies like, like fragile jars of clay that contain these glorious treasures that will only later be fully revealed. In 1 Corinthians 13, he compares what we experience and what we know now to like, it's like you're looking in this dim mirror and, and we understand only in part and we, we see only in part indistinctly what we will one day experience with, with nothing inhibiting it. One day, we're gonna live it fully, perfectly. And he also compares our bodies and what we experience now to a tent. And I want to spend some time with this one. I'm gonna read this one in, in, its, in its completeness here. It's 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse one. For we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is, when we die and leave this earthly body, we're going to have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself and not by human hands. We grow weary in our present bodies, and we long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing, for we'll put on heavenly bodies. We will not be spirits without bodies. But while we live in these earthly bodies, we groan and sigh. But it's not because we want to die and get rid of these bodies that clothe us. Rather, we want to put on our new bodies so that these dying bodies will be swallowed up by life. It's a beautiful way to put it. We're not, we're not seeking death. We don't glorify death. We're pro-life. But for us... Life will be swallowed up in even more life. That is what death is for believers. And so I have this tent up here to help us think through what Paul is teaching us about how to view our current lives. I put this tent here to ask you this question. When you see a tent and you think about camping in a tent, what associations, what memories, what emotions does that evoke? This is an old tent. I've had this thing for a long time. When I see this tent, I remember a night in Houston in our backyard. And I spent the night out in this tent in our backyard with our daughter, Darby, who at that time was three years old. And I remember us having this conversation in this tent. And she asked me what I thought she'd be when she grew up. And I told her, I think you'd be a great actress. I think you'd be a great actress. Now, I didn't say because you're already a drama queen. <laughs> but you know, one day in high school, she got into theater in a big way. And one day we watched her get a best actress award for the entire district in all those, in those huge high schools. She was an awesome actress. When I see that tent, 
I think of a couple spring break trips we took to Mexico. I remember sitting in that tent listening to these donkeys braying all night long down in Aquiles, Mexico. I look at that tent and I remember a time that I went backpacking on the Beartooth Plateau and I walked out of that front, the front flap and I watched this big bull moose walk across Knox Lake in the dawn. When I look at that tent, I have lots of good associations. I have lots of warm, positive memories. And, that, you know, and there was times, definitely, you know, there was, there, was, there was time sitting here and the rain's coming down and the wind's blowing, but those don't erase all the good associations either. On the other hand, my wife Sherry loves not camping. And so for some of you, when you walked in and you saw a tent, you immediately started getting hives. Because for you, a tent and the thought of camping just stresses you out. Because all of your associations with a tent means being miserable. You remember being inside one of those things and freezing. You remember the water dripping off the inside right here as you lay there in that damp sleeping bag. You remember your hair smelling like wood smoke the whole time. You remember your children permanently covered in sticky tree sap. You remember being exhausted after hiking and then lying inside one of these things all night, terrified by every noise that you heard out there in the dark. That is what you think about tents. And for some of you, life has been like that. For some of you, life has been like a bad, dreary camping trip. Or at least right now it does. Because you just don't feel good. In fact, you don't remember what it was like when you felt good. Or right now you are racked with worries. And you've suffered terrible losses. And when, when, you, when you think about life or the body you've experienced life in, and I'm up here telling you that life is good, you look at me like, preacher, you are clueless. If you knew my life, if you were in our house, and you tell me that life is good, if that's you, the Apostle Paul understands. If that's you, I want you to read what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 11 about his camping trip, his life. He lists everything he has suffered, imprisonment and beatings and starvation and poverty and shipwreck and disease and untrue accusations. He says he has lost everything. But then you also need to read his letter to the Philippians and how joyful it is. He's writing it from prison and he keeps telling those Christians how joyful he is and how joyful they should be even as he sits in prison. And that is the guy who reminds you, you're just camping right now. This tent, this, this body that hurts and is disabled and it disappointed you, it's temporary. The disappointments and injustices you have endured are temporary. This isn't home. This physical body isn't home. What you're going through right now, it's temporary. You're not home yet. But every day brings you closer to your real home, to your fully realized life.
You were made for more than a tent. You have heaven. And if this camping trip on this earth hasn't been so great for you, just wait. This is temporary. We're just camping. We're just hiking and camping right now. Listen to what he says in Philippians 3, his, his, his joyful letter. He says, no, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it. I'm not, I'm not home yet. But I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past, forgetting the hike up here, forgetting this long trip, and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us. Because... We are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives and we're eagerly awaiting for him to return as our savior. So if your present experience on earth has not been all that pleasant, that doesn't mean that life is not good. We can still say life is good. A biblical view is an eternal view. That's how we see we see the big picture. We know the whole story. And in the whole story, not just this chapter we're in right now, not just this camping trip, the few decades we are on in this earth are like a camping trip. And there's gonna be rain and there's gonna be sun. And there's gonna be beauty and there's gonna be drudgery and there's gonna be messes. But it's just temporary. We're just camping right now. But if you put your trust in God, if you seek him while you're on this trip, the reality is you have a house. You have a mansion. You have a mansion and a body waiting for you for all eternity, so much better than this tent, you cannot even imagine it. So here's what Jesus says when this camping trip is not going well. He says to us in John 14, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, what I've told you, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And you know the way where I am going. He says that because he is the way. When you take on Christ and make him Lord of your life and follow him, he will take you there. He's gonna come get you out of this tent and he's gonna take you home. When you have that forgiveness and that salvation in Christ, what we just saw Peyton take on earlier this morning, you can always truthfully say, life is good. Even when this camping trip is pretty miserable, when you know God, you recognize all the good he's doing, even on those rainy days, life is good because there's so much more than this. Jesus said to us, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. He means fullness of life now and life forever, unending later. He's talking about a peace that passes understanding now and peace in a place with no fear later. That is the potential of goodness and joy every day now and the guarantee 
of goodness and joy every day later. My dad was a song leader in our little church, and I would hear him practice his songs in the bedroom before we drove 35 miles one way to go to church. And one of my dad's favorite songs is a reminder of what we're talking about today. This song says, life is good. And right now, we're just camping. But one day, there's a mansion waiting for us. Let's stand and sing.